0: Hello, this is Alex Mershak With just a brief pre-announcement for this episode of Hacking State, there seems to be some kind of issue with my microphone. And so I apologize for the lack of audio quality in this particular episode. I'm going to work on getting the audio to be more consistent and clear in my new place. That being said, please enjoy this interview with Kino Corner. Hello and welcome to Hacking State. This is your host Alex Mershack. With me today is the Kino Corner.
1: Hey, what's up?
0: Hey, man, how you doing?
1: Uh, pretty good. I'm not hungover, so doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Great.
0: Um, well, so I originally contacted you uh, because I wanted to talk about this sort of film as a as a technology and as a medium itself. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Kino Corner is. Um I mean I, I guess you could explain it a little bit more, but I'll just say that it's a it's 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 really a, a great and, and cozy uh YouTube channel dedicated to you know movie reviews and just Cinephile type things in general. Um, yeah, it's
1: it's Cinephile type things in general, because uh um I I do reviews every now and then. Uh mm-hmm. and it's only if like it's only really if I ever if I see the movie early, <laughs> like I saw the whale like a month and a half early. So I was like, okay, well, since I'm seeing it before everybody else, I should just make a review of it. Uh, and then right. I saw asteroid city like two weeks early. So I was like, since I saw it early, I should make a review of it. But if like, uh, you know, if I see the movie when everyone else is seeing it, then I don't see the point of me doing a review. <laughs> it's like the people who are going to see it have seen it. Um, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's, Go. It's analysis of film. It's film history. It's me sort of just recommending weird little movies that I like, and sometimes it's me getting technical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't do the technical stuff as much. Uh, one of the one of the reasons is that people tell me they find the technical stuff boring, which just kind of blows my mind because I find the technical stuff to be the most compelling. Like, how do they get this? You know, how how did they achieve this? Like one of the coolest things uh was in the movie Ad Astra with a uh, uh, Brad Pitt mm-hmm. movie I movie I really like. Uh and I made this video and in the video I kind of detailed how they uh achieved the moon sequence. Mm-hmm. Which uh um you know, you, you watch it and you're like, Wow, that actually does look like the moon. You know, and you kind of just assume they shot it in the studio and a CGI. No, they shot it in the desert in Southern California. So they made the moon rovers, right? And they went out to the desert in Southern California and they're doing all the action sequences there, which honestly must have been really fun. But, uh, and they had a double camera setup. So one camera was a 35 millimeter film camera. Uh, and then an, the camera that was like right next to it capturing basically the same ima- same image was a, a, a digital camera, an Aria Alexa, that was fitted to shoot uh, infrared. So basically mm. what that did was it would, uh, the sky, the bright sky would just be black, like a very mm. deep black, because um, you might get the wrong impression if you played Starfield. But if you're on the moon, the sky is black, (laughs) like, you know, in Starfield, you go on the moon and you see all the stars in the sky and you're like, ah, I don't know if I would see all that. Uh, And, and then, uh, you know, they composited the two images, Uh, they composited the two images so they would get that deep black sky, uh, turn the uh, sand gray through color correction, and then they had to digitally take out the different uh, bits of uh, flora. That were on the ground and boom you have the moon i thought that was pretty neat i thought that was a a neat way to shoot it Um, people are like oh that's boring and i'm like what you you mean like (laughs)
0: like people are not into like the sort of cinematography type stuff no
1: people aren't into the cinematography type stuff you know it's like i honestly i would love to talk about like get really autistic about how they lit the scene or something, but Mm -hmm. you you then have to think about who's the cinematography, like how many people actually want to be cinematographers. And when you're dealing with YouTube at mass scale, you know, I have 137,000 subscribers. There's probably only about 137,000 people out there who want to be cinematographers. And I doubt that most of them even know who I am. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so a lot of people are just like movies, and and i kind of get it too because they don't want the magic ruined they don't want to know the technical details so they don't want the magic you know ruined or or something but I, I i had, had a, a i, I had a film ruined a long time ago
0: <laughs> like a, a film production uh studio class whatever instructor in high school and mm-hmm. this guy managed to like get this whole thing to be kind of a big deal in the school so we got to do, you know, like uh, we had like our own fake news station, and we got to produce like short films and stuff like that. And one of the things he would always do is he would start out when you would begin the class by like going through. Um, he was a big like Alfred Hitchcock fan, and so oh, we watched yeah, like Hitchcock's the Hitchcock great. movies, and then he would, you know, we would like learn about how they um, set up those scenes and and you know the the shots for mm-hmm. those old movies when you know technologically it was a lot more difficult.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a lot more work too. Uh, people, people think that, uh, you know, people think that you can make a movie in a day, basically. I mean, that's, that's kind of their assumption. It's, it's, it's strange. (laughs)
0: You have an iPhone, don't you?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. So I got a funny story about that. So the guy who made the movie Tangerine, uh, Mm. Sean Baker, um, All of his other movies are shot on film, Uh, but because he made Tangerine on an iPhone, uh, people are like, you have an iPhone like that. That really kickstarted that you have an iPhone, don't you? You can just make a movie right now. You don't need anything. I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, even if I did have an iPhone, I would need attachments for that lens attachments. I would need uh, special rigs for the iPhone. I would need I still need lights. I still need to hire all the same crew members that you still have to hire for everything, you know, gaffer grips, uh, uh DP, um, sound guy, uh, hair and makeup, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I'd still have a production designer, set, set dressers, like, I still have to get all these people. So <laughs> the iPhone, like shooting on an iPhone doesn't exactly bring the cost down by a lot because most of the costs are not actually in the camera, uh, But it's funny because he shot Tangerine on an iPhone and at a a Q&A, somebody who was like gushing about him shooting on an iPhone asked him why he made that decision. And he said, well, my producer told us that we didn't have money to shoot on film. So told me to choose a digital camera to shoot, to shoot the movie with. And I said, well, they all look like shit. Let's just do it on an iPhone. (laughs) And, And so, and so that was, that was the reason. I think the the movie had a budget of a hundred thousand or or something, which outside of L A, um, you know, you'd be still be able to you'd be able to shoot on film uh, with a hundred k. The problem with L A, especially if you're trying to get locations, is that locations and permits can mm. end up uh, costing quite a bit, especially like private locations, because uh, people in L A they know how to play the game. They want to milk you for as much money as you can so like in Austin when I did my short film last month um yeah I did my short film in end of October beginning of November uh it's kind of a blur but uh I didn't have to pay for any locations so Mm, right uh, that wouldn't be the case in LA
0: so I mean the original um pitch for this interview is that we're going to talk a little bit about you know uh, how films impact our conception of modernity and technology um, mm. and maybe even whether they're pointing at, at the future. Um, one of the things that's interesting about film is we sort of go back and remember a time uh, that mm. in many, in, in a lot of cases, lots of people that we know actually lived through, through the film that is almost always made after the fact uh, yeah. accounting for that time. So film becomes this interesting, um, retconning of history where Mm -hmm. uh, like if you look at you know films that take place in the 70s or films that take place in the 1980s most of the time are not being made in those eras especially if they're really trying to go for the uh to be a period piece right um and yet those end up being the landmark uh films that we refer to when we think about those periods of times
1: yeah if if you want a real movie about the 70s watch uh, taxi driver uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, ty- that's uh, one of or, the ones I was thinking of, or a Hal Ashby movie like mm-hmm. The Last Detail, or Being There, or um, you know, Coming Home, or Shampoo, uh, or Harold and Maude. I think yeah, because he all he he made pretty much contemporary films. Hal Ashby did, uh, so did Casavettes, but Taxi Driver, even more so, just because uh, they were shooting on the streets of New York. And one of the funny uh, anecdotes about the film is that they were shooting it during the the garbage strikes of New York. And you don't really ever see movies that take place in 70s New York that include the garbage strikes. Because if you look at the streets in Taxi Driver, it's just filled with trash. That wasn't the set dressing. Mm -hmm. That was just real. And they said that it stank so much outside when they were shooting taxi driver that it was almost unbearable at times. Uh, so if you, you know, and I think that they just took the camera cause New York is a different permitting system. You know, if you don't have your camera on sticks, uh, you don't have to get a permit. So I think a lot of the people in there were real people. I mean, same with midnight cowboy, you know, famously when John Boyd and uh, um, Dustin Hoffman were crossing the street, the taxi did hit him because They, you know, those other people weren't extras. They just had them crossing the street talking and uh, got the line. I'm walking here, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: So are there any films being made now that you think do a good job of casting? uh, Or I guess not being made, but have been made recently that do a really good job of casting the overall feel of today? Um, Because one criticism is that like. Um, our external environment hasn't changed a lot. Yeah.
1: You know, you know, it was a really kind of interesting commentary, uh, was, I think it was from the director's commentary of boyhood when Richard Linklater set out to make, make boyhood part of what he set out to do was he thought that over 12 years, there would be uh, a major cultural change from the late nineties to 2012 you know, Mm -hmm. because if you look at the cultural changes from say 1986 to 1998, I mean, there were major fashion changes. There was a major music shift. There was, there were like external signifiers where we can look back now, look at say a film or a photo or something and be able to tell if it was mid eighties or if it was mid nineties. Um, and what he noted is that, uh, He was like actually not a whole lot changed um you know yeah computers got better you know the iphone was introduced but people generally dressed the same the fashion fashion changed a little bit but not in any kind of meaningful way uh cars you know yeah cars from the late 90s do look different than cars from the 2000s but not by huge metrics Mm -hmm. uh you know and uh and i think that you know 2008 the financial crisis of 2008 uh didn't help any you know anything when people just were having older things like i mean in to- 2012 i was driving a car from 2000 a lot of my friends were driving like early 2000s cars
0: i was driving i was driving a 1997 uh <laughs> buick <laughs> in college
1: yeah i was driving a uh it was almost as old
0: as I was.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was, I was driving a 2000 Chevy Silverado. Um, and, you know, a lot of my friends were and yeah, like if you, you know, in high school, like if you looked at photos of like, previous, you know, graduating classes. If you took if you did, if you took out the the uh, the year of our graduating classes from like maybe 2006 to 2012, and you asked somebody like today. Like some zoomer, like put the ears down. I don't think they'd be able to do it. Like, uh, but as far as movies today that address modernity, well, it's hard to say because a lot of big directors now, I don't think are very, uh, I don't think they're very interested in modernity. Uh, you see, Wes Anderson has been doing uh, period pieces for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So has Paul Thomas Anderson. You know Christopher Nolan's news film takes place in the in the mid 20th century. Uh, uh, the holdovers, the new Alexander Payne movie takes place in 1970. Uh, a lot, like a lot of these directors are making movies about the past. Uh, they're not as they're not really that interested in 2023. And then the movies that we did get that are of like modern times, it seems want to have, like, this COVID slant on them, which is stupid. Uh, like, no one wanted to see that. I, I feel like the whole, like, pandemic era is something that people are rightly just not interested in seeing on screen. It's, it's kind of like... Yeah, it, I, yeah I, we don't, ca- I don't think we anyone kinda wants to want to be forget reminded that. of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a
0: black hole for two years. Yeah, it's just like... Away.
1: It's just like, look it sucked. I don't want to see that on, on film, <laughs> you know, right. It just, it sucked. Uh, the one director is making interesting stuff. Uh, I mean, we we're, we're seeing, uh, modernity in, uh, in film is not from any kind of big, big movie. Um, so I know that my buddy Eugene Kotlarenko. uh, he just shot a new film. I know he's really focused on modernity, not just in what he shows, but how he shows it. So he started off making screen movies, which is like, which is like movies that take place entirely on a computer. Uh, then he made uh, Wobble Palace with uh, him, uh, le- uh, starring him and uh, Dasha, and uh, that was. I don't know, almost 10 years ago at this point, I think he made Wobble Pop. Maybe it was 2015. I forget the exact year. Uh, and that was shot more traditionally, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's about like a modern kind of millennial romance sort of falling apart, you know, kind of Woody allen type type thing.
0: I had no uh, idea that Dasha was in this film.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's actually, you know, it's so funny is that um, I hadn't listened to Red Scare or anything, I mm-hmm. had heard people talk about Dasha. I had no idea who she was. Uh, I didn't know who she was until I saw Wobble Palace. So that's how I discovered. Because I'm not—I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts or anything. Uh, yeah. The one podcast I listen to more frequently, I guess, is the Bradley Snell's podcast. Um, and you know, that's kind of it. So, so I, I guess I'm as cultured as the the Gen Xer, but. Um, yeah, so I discovered her through through that film, and uh, and then he made a movie called Spree with uh, Joe Keery, which kind of combined a few different things. It's supposed to be like you're watching some insane guys live stream for the whole film, and okay. so so he shot it with like GoPros and iPhones and and uh, you know stuff that like a streamer would use. Yeah, uh, so there's and- sort of like a
0: like an overlay of the internet. Right. Yeah. In all these. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In most of his films, there's like this, like internet overlay on it. And then, um, so he's really going into not just the story being modern, but going into very much like the form of it being as modern as he can make it too. Uh, and then someone who's doing modernity, but is doing a little bit different differently is a guy named Christopher Borgley, who I'm making a video about actually right now. Uh, should be coming out on this weekend. Uh, And he came out with two films this year. Uh, Well, one of his films technically released last year at Cannes, but uh, when an indie movie releases at Cannes, it can take a year to actually release. Um, And uh, his film that came out earlier this year is called Sick of Myself. And then his newest film is in theaters now. It's called Dream Scenario with uh, Nicolas Cage. And he's going for uh talking he's going for uh uh, movies that sort of uh explore very modern ideas especially modern ideas about the internet modern ideas about uh woke culture and uh, cancel culture and uh how human relations have uh changed because of the internet and uh but he's not going like full Eugene, uh, cause he still shoots on film and he still makes these movies look very like classical, uh, or almost like, almost like, uh, yeah, they, you know, they look almost like 90s films, you know, mm-hmm. um, so he's going for a more classical look. And I mean, I really like Borgley's, I really like Borgley. Um, I like the classical look paired with a very kind of modern setting. Uh and Dream Scenario and Sick of Myself, both released this year. Um Sick of Myself is about a woman who'll do anything for fame. So she uh disfigures her body to try to get famous on like Instagram.
0: Mm.
1: And then Dream Scenario uh is starring Nicolas Cage and it's a uh, um and it's about, uh, this guy and he starts showing up in everybody's dreams. Yeah. And he becomes like a viral sensation. But then once the dreams turn to nightmares, uh, he gets canceled. And so like the second half of the movie is about the whole, like cancel culture, everything that he's going through in regards to that. And it becomes like this satire on, uh, education, uh, cause he's a professor satire on how education just buckles under the pressure of the students now, how the students are all pussies mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, and just kind of this modern sort of mom mentality that the Internet really loves to uh, um, uh, help flourish, I guess.
0: I, I'm curious. I know that um, a lot of your audience doesn't like the technical stuff, but this is Hacking State and we like technology. How does how does the like more classical look uh, get achieved? Like, what what tactics does someone use to make a film look more like the '90s than today? Well, I mean,
1: it's it's easy to shoot on film, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, digital just uh, digital digital just has an overall different look and feel to it. So I'm like I'm a purist. I'm a film purist when it comes to my own projects because I like getting the classical look for the stuff that I do. Um, but I'm not a purist when it comes to films in general. Like I understand different directors have different intentions and whatnot. And so I, you know, I enjoy movies shot on all sorts of different cameras and whatnot. Uh, but like something that kind of gets me is like, say you want to make a movie about the sixties and you shoot it on uh, a digital camera and then you, and then you, uh, and then you make it look very digital, uh, like that's, I guess that's fine, but it doesn't exactly bring you back to the sixties. There's something just about the film grain, how the film picks up highlights a bit differently, how the film interprets colors a bit differently than digital and uh, how that just in our minds, right? Like, because we're so used to watching movies from the sixties and the 20th century. And, and honestly, like, digital wasn't a mainstream way to shoot movies up until like 2012. Mm. Uh, and, uh, it just is, I don't know that it's like, we've been conditioned to think that, that, especially that gr- the, the grain patterns of film immediately puts us back aesthetically into, um, these different time periods. Um, and for example, like when PTA made a phantom thread, he shot that on 35. Well, something to know about film as well is that film has film technology has actually gotten a lot better over the years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you shoot on 16, 16 millimeter, now it like, if you, if you use 50 D, which is the slowest 16 stock and for everybody out there who maybe doesn't know much about film, uh, what's re- the film that's really available now is this Kodak film. So the, you know, there used to be Fuji and Orwo and these other companies, but now it's pretty much just Kodak. Um, and so you can shoot with 50D, 200T, 250D, uh, or 500T. And then there's two different black and white stocks there's Tri X, which is a reversal, and then there's, uh, double X, which is what I shot my short film on, which is a, uh, black and white negative. Uh, I don't think I would shoot anything completely on reversal film just because it's a little bit more finicky than Mm. negative film. But, um, but the slower the stock, the less grain it's going to have. So 500T is 500 ISO, 500 ASA. Uh, that's going to be grainier than 50D. That's going to be a lot grainier than 50D. So if you shoot 500, or show, so if you shoot 50D 16, it actually kind of looks like 35 millimeter of the 80s or 90s. Uh, so that's a pretty easy way, and it's a cheaper way to, to, to make it look like something from the 20th century. Uh, just because of the colors and the, and the grain structure. Uh, something that's been happening a bit recently on, on some movies, I think that the holdovers did it, but I know for a fact that Dune and the Batman did this hmm. is that they've gone for this intermediate, um, this intermediate look where, uh, so I, I know for a fact that the Batman did this, but I'm, as I said, I'm i kind of sure that the holdovers did it, but they haven't talked at length about this yet so i'm gonna wait and see uh where so in the batman they shot the film on a digital camera i believe it was like uh the uh, alexa 65 or the alexa lf one of the large format um alexa cameras so they shot the film digitally on one of the large format digital cameras um and after they edited the film they they printed it onto a uh, 65, 70 millimeter film and then did a bleach bypass onto that print uh, to change the overall look of it and then scanned the film uh, back to digital. So, so that they would get some of the grain from it being on, on film stock and they would get, and they would soften it a little bit. Uh, and, Then get the, then get like a real bleach bypass um, look to it instead of like a fake, uh, you know, digital bleach bypass look to it. And so they did that as the finishing for the film. So, so that the movie, like the Batman, uh, has, doesn't look quite digital, but it doesn't look quite like film. Mm -hmm. And, and since they were going for a very stylized, almost 70s feeling to it even though you know i'm pretty sure it takes place in modern day but they wanted they wanted it to feel kind of like modern but not modern at the same time you know it does achieve a pretty cool look and the cinematographer for the batman greg greg frazier is the same cinematographer for dune so it makes sense that he did the same thing on the dune movies uh where they they uh after they finish Editing the, the movie, they they print it on the film and then rescan it back in the digital to, to get right. this like intermediate look.
0: So um, one of the things that I know is uh, sort of interesting about you, at least compared to like, you know, some other. Uh, there's a bunch of different, you know, cinephile YouTube channels out there. Some big ones is that you also are, you know, actively making your own films. Um, mm-hmm. And so obviously like you know, the dream of YouTube was sort of that it would enable this, uh, ultimately, that, you know, it yeah. would create all these new filmmakers. Um, and you are doing that um, in, in numerous capacities. And so I just wanted to ask you, like, has the fundamental, like, economics um, of filmmaking, of movie making changed? Or, you know, how does that go when you're an independent, small creator like yourself?
1: It's always hard. (laughs) It's always hard. And the the hardest thing always comes down to getting money, right? Mm. It's like, that's the hardest thing about film is is getting money. Uh, Orson Welles has talked about this pretty extensively. (laughs) Like if Orson Welles had a really hard time getting funding for projects and he made some of the best movies ever made, then it's going to be hard for everybody. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And I think it's getting... I think it's been harder recently because there seems to be like as we see this maybe bigger gap right bef- between the the working class and 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 the rich uh in in terms of just about everything uh we're seeing that in in film too where it's now we're kind of in this uh world and hopefully this is going to change hopefully all of Disney's failures will will change this where it's like you're either making a movie like the mid-budget, the mid-budget movies have sort of like gone to the wayside. You don't really see them that often anymore. You're either making a movie that's like a Blumhouse style film, that's like $5 million or less, um, or you're making some grossly overinflated uh, studio film that's like $250, 500 million, or 250, $300 million picture. Uh, and if you're independent, yeah, good luck uh, trying to get over a million dollars for your budget. That's probably just not gonna happen. You know, back in the late 60s, you know, there were efforts to try to garner new talent by having what they called like million dollar movies. Uh, Mm. You know, they'd give, uh, BBS studios famously, um, you know, would give uh, like up and coming filmmakers like Peter Bogdanovich, uh, like, not a whole lot of money to shoot their movies but create a freedom because they wanted to to make something they, they wanted movies to be made that were interesting and cool and uh you know try to find new talent and if that ended up not working out well it wasn't a huge loss and bbs is how we got films like you know uh easy rider which was dennis hopper's big you know dennis hopper had acted quite extensively before that but that was his directorial debut, Uh, you know, The Last Picture Show by Peter Bogdanovich, Five Easy Pieces, um, and a slew of other films, Uh, you know, and around this around that same time as well, you know, you had Roger Corman sort of at the height of his producing power. And he was making movies also with like, Peter Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese and uh, Scorsese might have been with some someone different. uh, But there were these like, uh, producers who, who, who could you know, who could get, uh, these directors, uh, you know, a a bit of money to make, to make these movies, not a whole lot, but, um, there was creative, you know, but the low budgets allowed the directors have creative control. We don't really have the infrastructure for that right now. In fact, you kind of see, uh, an anti, uh, independent infrastructure right now where, uh, say you, you make a low budget film like, let's say, Safety Not Guaranteed, which is directed by Colin Trevorrow. What happens after that is that a studio looks at that and says, hey, he was able to pull this off. Hey, come direct Jurassic World for a 200-something million dollar budget because you're an indie director, you're not a studio director, you're not a big name yet, and we can, there's still time to make you like a, a corporate stooge. Mm. And, you know, the Marvels, Director Nia DaCosta, or whatever her name is, I forget. She'd only made one movie. It was a Candyman remake. So it was, you know, a horror film that had, you know, a relatively low budget. And then they bring her on to direct the Marvels. And it's like it's the same reason. It, it's because she's not some rock star director. So they can like bring her on to this big set and say, like, no, this is how things are run around here. Like this isn't an independent thing, so you got to like take our word for it because it's really Kevin Feige who's like making these MCU movies, but mm-hmm. you get these indie directors in there to be like, yeah, you're the director, sure, <laughs> yeah, and we can, but you're really just going to be, we're really going to be calling the shots, like the yeah, so are going to be calling the shots.
0: They're easy to control, and yeah. um, and then also like there's a there's a whole brutal uh, like self. Tryout process where it's like we'll just wait to see if you make anything good, and then if you do, we'll try to snag you.
1: Yeah, and then when somebody like say uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who had success and um, with like Twenty One Jump Street, Twenty Two Jump Street, and um, what was the other the other movie, uh, uh, the Lego Movie, you know, they were brought on to direct Solo: A Star Wars Story. And the movie that they were making was not the movie that Lucasfilm wanted. Mm -hmm. So they had shot a lot of the movie. And then Lucasfilm was like, oh, uh, we don't want this movie. We want, like, this is not the movie that we want. Which kind of boggles my mind because it's like, didn't you, like, see their pitch and the script and everything before? (laughs) Like... How how do you get to like eighty percent of production done when you when you realize that they're making a Phil Lord and Chris Miller movie and not a you know a Kathleen Kennedy movie, and so they fired uh yeah so they fired Phil Lord and Chris Miller and replaced replaced them with a uh, um another director who made what Lucasfilm wanted to be made, which you know probably was not as interesting as the movie that they were making. And that's just, you know, and Colin Trevorrow, I think, was initially set to direct Star Wars episode, episode nine, the, the, the really bad one. Um, And I think he said that the script was stupid and that got him fired uh, because he wanted to do a rewrite of the script. And so it's kind of like, yeah, you're a corporate stooge here, but you got to know that you basically can't say no to us. What we're seeing in terms of the film economy right now is you either make something super low budget or you make something super high budget. And if you're a person who doesn't like being a part of like a big system and playing corporate games and, you know, uh, being a yes man, you're probably going to be stuck to the really low budget stuff, at least for the time being. And so there are there, are there actually,
0: any large initiatives right now or even just individuals that are trying to figure out a, so, a solution to this?
1: So I know Eugene Kotlarenko is currently has this uh like film fund thing for like, you know, low budget films out in LA to like develop movies and, and get uh and get small budgets for them, you know, like what I I think that for the films that they try to raise for it's like 1 to 2 million or it's something like that. Uh I mean apart from that I don't know like I if if they exist I haven't heard of them and that's the only one that I know that I know of. Uh but like it seems like the the people that say they want to make this quote unquote anti-Hollywood stuff it's all got this kind of political bias to it. Um, so, you know, if you want to make something anti-Hollywood, just sign on to the Daily Wire. And I'm right. like, right. you know, just make Daily, Daily Wire
0: Plus. Here he comes.
1: Daily Wire Plus. I was just talking in another episode about how the Daily Wire site sucks so much uh, that when I got a Daily Wire Plus subscription for a month, uh, when they released Run Hide Fight, because I had to I had to review it for the show. And at the time, that was the only movie they had on Daily Wire Plus, and they're still charging $15 a month. So it's like, I say I got it for a month, I really had it for about three days. <laughs> like I got it, watched the movie, did the show the next day. And then the next day after that, I, uh, I tried to unsubscribe. I, you know, I was like, Okay, all right, you know, I, I paid 15 bucks, whatever I, I got out of super chats and stuff. I I made the money back. So, um, time to unsub, I don't want to like pay $15 a month to watch one movie and one kind of bad movie. And so I go to the website and I'm looking on it and there's no unsubscribe button and I'm like clicking everywhere. So I call support and, and the guy's like, yeah, we don't have an unsub button. I'm like, what? Like,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like, is that legal?
1: Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Is that legal? (laughs) And he's like, well, we didn't think people would want to unsub. And I'm like, well, I do. And then he asked me, why do you want to unsub? I'm like, I don't want to pay fifteen dollars Well, I just told him, I don't want to pay $15 a month to watch one movie. Just sell me the (laughs) Blu-ray. I mean, I won't buy the Blu-ray because, you know, I have plenty of bad movies in my catalog, but I'm not sure that I want daily wire movies in my catalog. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he's like, oh yeah i guess that makes sense okay i'll uh i'll i'll end your subscription and then i found out because i had to review lady ballers their their newest film for a podcast i found out that i've had the daily wire access to daily wire plus for the last two years without actually paying for it (laughs) (laughs) because he he didn't actually get rid of my subscription he just got rid of the payments
0: well, that's that's pretty good that's <laughs> <Yeah>. great service
1: <laughs> yeah what it's like wow man that is that's messed up <laughs> that is that's not a good model uh and um but yeah like okay so when you look at like these movies that are making like anti-hollywood stuff it's like you either go right now the only things that exist are like the angel studio stuff which is more like christian films and then hmm daily wire which is like boomer conservative uh films that you have to like have this implicit sort of uh or explicit not even implicit uh conservative political leaning to the to the movies neither and neither of those options are are something i'm really interested in at all um but and i think that what's I don't really know much about angel studio stuff. And, you know, I think you and I are friends with one of the guys, uh, uh, Steve. Um, so, I mean, that's like his thing. Uh, but with like the daily wire, the daily wire stuff, um, I don't want to make boomer conservative movies. I I don't want movies with like, where I have to tell the audience, this is why this movie is conservative, you know? And it's like, no, I don't want to like demean the audience. I, I I don't want to talk down to them. And I don't even want to have explicit political messages in the film. Like I'd rather have very muddied political messages where people, no matter where they come from, are going to take out of it what they sort of project onto it. Um, yeah, and the, the, I, yeah, There's yeah, always
0: this problem of, when like you politicize the art it inevitably undermines yeah. the actual object and so yeah. well it you makes can't the... have an explicit political agenda like there can be yeah. implicit political um like commentaries or um or uh uh observations that come out of a film of a good yeah. piece of art but if it, mm-hmm. if you make the film about it then it's just a propaganda piece yeah and who yeah. wants to see that
1: yeah i'm not interested in making propaganda i'm interested in making stuff that tends to go more towards universal kind of human the universal human condition and then people are going to project onto that their own political biases but my political biases will inevitably make their make their way into the film but that doesn't mean that the film overall is like what i want to make is overall like political um i'd rather make it something that can appeal to as many people as possible uh given maybe the subject matter that i'm you know given the kind of movie i'm making that might not appeal to to everyone but i i guess what i'm saying is i want to make films that appeal to me (laughs) And I hate it when it's like they break, they like stop the movie to tell you about the politics of the film. Right. And
0: I break the fourth wall.
1: Right. Yeah. And I can, I can really enjoy left-wing movies that are more implicitly left-wing and I enjoy those way more than explicitly right-wing movies uh, or explicitly left-wing movies. You know, if it's like implicit in one sense or another, and it's something that you have to think about to kind of be like, Oh, yeah, I guess this movie is maybe has this kind of political leaning to it. That's mm-hmm. not bothersome to me at all. It's bothersome to me when it's when it's in your face about it. I mean, there's plenty of, there's right-wing, you know, right-wing stuff like that. And there's plenty of left-wing stuff like that too. Just look at like a lot of Godard's movies where he will just have some character just rant, like go on this rant about socialism for like 15 minutes, you know, like in a movie, say like Two which is one of the reasons why I don't really care for Godard so much. And I find Truffaut, a far superior uh, film director, who touched on a lot of the same uh, stuff as uh, Godard in his films, but did so much more subtly and did so with much more grace, I find.
0: Mm. So I talked to another filmmaker um, earlier on in the show few months back called uh brendan murata i don't know if you know this guy Mm -hmm. so he did um uh, a film that i I guess was decently popular called american circumcision um that was like on netflix and whatever it's on amazon prime now um about sort of like whatever the anti-circumcision movement um and that film had like kind of a political message but it's like it's, it's not clear, like, I mean, I think people can guess that it would lean more conservative, but it's not exactly like a black and white thing. It's I, just I like people that care about that issue.
1: I don't necessarily even think it's a conservative thing. I think, you know, being anti-circumcision is just like people have woken up from the the mind virus that Dr. Kellogg put into a American society. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: so, so I interviewed him a little bit. We didn't actually do the interview about, about the movie, but we did an interview about the, a book that he wrote where he tried to like combine critical theory in service of this, uh, of this topic. And that was interesting. But I, I brought him up not to talk about um, the political orientation of circumcision, but um, to mention that uh, he's another guy here in Austin. And I think his films have all been crowdfunded. Um, I mean, that's definitely is a way that, to do it now. Yeah. So that's a viable, um, a fundraising model still. Um, and um, are there big films that come out of that?
1: I would say that like, to crowdfund a movie, uh, there's a lot more work to get done, uh, beforehand. So it's not like anybody can, can crowdfund, you know, if nobody knows who you are, good luck. Like, it's, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, if you know, really rich people, or, you know, really famous people who can say, help spread the word, you know, to their audiences, you know, if you can say like, I want to, I want to crowdfund this movie. Well, good thing. I'm friends with, you know, Red Scare. Good thing. I'm friends with you know all these streamers good thing that i'm friends with all these pundits and whoever who have hundreds of thousands if not millions of followers on twitter who can then say like tell their audience go crowd you know go throw in five bucks or whatever and then you have your money uh you know you have to like there's still a lot of gatekeeping in terms of the crowdfunding you have to be a name or you have to at least have as i said have really rich friends who who will put a lot of money into it or have famous friends who will basically act as like uh cheerleaders for the film and, you know, act almost as as, as like executive producers, except, you know, they're not going to money people. They're just going to their audience and having their audience uh you know, their massive audiences throw in money. So um yeah, you know, uh, crowdfunding like like say, even looking at, uh, so Andy Andy Ruse uh, is shooting a film as we speak right now, shooting a film in L.A. short film uh, based on a uh, Delicious Tacos. Uh, yeah, Asher Asher's directing it, mm-hmm. and they crowdfunded that. And even though it had like Peter Vac, uh, Peter Vac is playing as Delicious Tacos. Um, negative Negative Xp is doing the music for it. And, you know, Ash has a sex mag and everything Uh, when they were crowd and, you know, and Andy Ruse is a legend. Um, And when they were crowdfunding it, it was there was a certain point during the crowdfunding that they were like, we don't know if we're actually going to make the money for this. I think they were at like 12,000 out of 20,000 that they needed to do it. And it just kind of sat there stagnating um, for for quite some time. So you, you can either, you know, and all these people are fairly well known. So, I mean, I started to share the thing around to some, some of my like bigger, more influential friends, but then I did a stream on YouTube with with Asher that was like a marathon like a telethon you know type thing to like raise money to raise money for it and we ended up uh we ended up uh raising i don't know a couple thousand maybe on that stream but it it got the momentum rolling for for that again and so like crowd crowdfunding is is almost more work than the traditional you know funding because you're you know, you'd think that like asking somebody like for five bucks or 20 bucks or, or whatever, like it's not that much money, but you're asking them to, to give you money in hopes that, you know, for a future product. And the other problem with, with crowdfunding is that you're asking them to invest money with no return on investment other than they can maybe get some merch and they can get right. early access to the film and people don't even know how the film is going to turn out they don't know how the film is going to turn out they don't even know if the film is going to be made like you know uh usually with like investors you have some sort of like insurance um uh document that you have to sign that uh essentially ensures that you have to make the 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 film you have to make it um and you don't do this with with crowdfunding. Uh, so it's kind of a hard sell, even that like $5 from a random person, is kind of a hard sell. It's like they could use that $5 on a, on a latte. They would get that latte right then, you know, and they have like that immediate, like, yep, this is, this is a latte. I can enjoy it right now. Whereas $5 into delicious tacos. movie, I believe we, I believe we raised the money like a year ago and they're shooting it today. Yeah, and so it's not going to come out for another month or so. Uh, it's my guess, and you know, so that's that's even a very hard sell, and uh, and I think that we're now like one of the problems with crowdfunding now is that a lot of people have been burned by by crowdfunding uh, ventures where people will like will kickstart or they'll use Indiegogo to you know, have some product that they end up just not releasing at all, or they crowdfund a movie that ends up being trash and people like are like, man, I, I put like 500 bucks into this and this sucks, you know? And, uh, you know, cause you're kinda like, you're you're asking people to take sort of, uh, you know, a liability on it and whether, you know, it might not be made at all and, and it might, Money might be squandered, you might not get it back, or like you get it and you're like, I put this money into it, and it's like this. Right. (laughs) You know, so so
0: so you think the the traditional investor model is actually just cleaner uh in some ways.
1: It is cleaner, Yeah. yeah. It is cleaner. I mean, I think that like new directors shouldn't be afraid of things like uh product placement as well, because product placement, you know, they give you a some of cash to be like okay have our have our uh you know stuff in the in the movie and and then you know that's all they care about is just people see the people see the film people see the the brand right within mm-hmm. the within the within the movie and i mean so like and for example like if say a beer company wanted to do product placement in a movie of mine or a whiskey company or something. Uh, that that honestly would work better because I'd rather have like a real bottle of whiskey, say, or a real beer brand that people are drinking in the movie, than have like the fake. Uh, like you, you know, there's like these vinyl overlays that you can put over like a whiskey bottle or paper and vinyl overlays you can put over like a whiskey bottle or beer bottle that are just like the fake brands used for movies. You know, for me, that just makes it more realistic anyways. Um, You know, I, the Truman show kind of had a little visual gag about this, where, when Truman's friend shows up with a six pack of beer, his cans are just these white cans that say beer on them. Uh, You know, and it's so obviously fake. So, you know, sometimes you can make something like product placement just work to your advantage. I believe that's how Fincher got a lot of money for the killer was there's a lot of product placement in the film, but he is a guy working in this kind of modern, like post-industrial society that, uh, is, you know, these large corporations are everywhere and that's kind of part of the movie. So it makes sense within the, you know, within the confines of the movie that say he'd be using Amazon prime to to get to get the stuff that he uses to uh, assassinate people uh and you know uh, but it's yeah traditional investors is definitely is definitely cleaner uh the risk is higher though you know Mm. because the um the risk is higher for traditional investors just because you do have to go back like if it's a crowd right and say the movie doesn't perform well well, you don't have any like fiduciary duty to them. Your only duty is just to make the thing. Whereas with a traditional investor, you do have a fiduciary duty. You do like, you want to be able to go back and say, we made a profit. Now here's your, now here's your money back, right? Here's your split of the profit. If you don't, if the movie doesn't make a profit, that's a pretty hard, uh, it's a pretty hard conversation I have.
0: <laughs> right, right. You know? So, um, you watched The Killer recently and you, know, you really liked it. Yeah. I haven't seen it. What, what did you like about it?
1: Uh, I have a video coming out. Yeah, I know. It's a teaser. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think it's Fincher's best. Um, mm. but I found it, I found it to be an interesting movie, uh, especially an interesting movie on, uh, just. The sort of modern life and modern gig work culture, hmm. where it's kind of like uh, the modern life has sucked the soul out of out of everybody, and and Fassbender's character, the unnamed killer, is uh, a stand-in for, uh, I guess, a lot of people in the in the workplace now. Uh, you know, I've seen him described as like a McKinsey consultant turned hitman. And that's pretty, pretty apt. And it's, it's
0: very easy to imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not too far from reality, really, when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. If you have, have you met those guys? They're, uh, they're a little weird, <laughs> but he, uh, Fincher really plays into this, uh, genre of film about like, uh, uh modern samurai uh but he inverts a lot of it to make it even more soulless but i like that you know he's making it more like the genre of film includes and i talk about this in the video uh melville's uh classic film *The samurai which starred alan Delong long and the the late 60s and jim jarmusch's uh film ghost dog which starred ghost dog the way the samurai would start in uh was starred forrest whitaker and uh the hitman sort of falls and to a similar, I mean, structurally in a lot, in a lot of different ways, it's, it's very, very similar to these films, but like those movies, you know, these characters live by the Bushido, uh, this kind of chivalric ideal, uh, and then the killer, he lives by his own sort of, it kind of feels like a corporate memo, uh, you know, and so like any kind of notion of, uh, ancient, uh, I mean, I know that the Bushido is not exactly ancient, but pre-modern, uh, pre-modern ideals, uh, any kind of notion of honor, any kind of notion of uh, of just like being able to be the best man that you can be while being a warrior is completely gone in the killer, and it's and it's replaced by how can I be as as efficient as possible, you know? Mm. And his whole thing is like they hire me because I don't give a fuck. You know, I don't care. Like nothing in the world matters. Nothing I do matters. I make money by doing this. This is my gig. How can I? How can I make it as efficient? How can I uh, make it as efficient as possible? And you know, and he works in this like hyper consumerist world, and uh, he, you know, and I. Not to spoil it, but things go awry, and he thinks he's sort of like fighting the system to a point, but he's also completely enveloped by the system while fighting for it. Like, for example, using Amazon to get some of his assassin tools, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. uh, using, uh, renting cars from Hertz, getting supplies at Ace Hardware, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) like using, using Postmates to, to sneak into an apartment, you know? and it kind of there's this thread throughout the film on on how like we live in this like global panopticon and how everything is so interconnected and that interconnectedness actually puts us more at risk of people like fast killer where it's easier now more than ever to say find out where somebody lives or get right. get into their you know get into their house, uh, because like the, uh, things like RFID, you know, locks and whatnot are so easily, uh, like easily worked around that, uh, you know, we have, it's basically like the, a lot of these security systems that people have now are, are just to, to tell themselves that, uh, um, you know, to tell themselves that they're safe when they're not. Um, Mm. and so, yeah, so there's a lot of commentary on sort of the modern state of, of people in that. But what I took away, what I liked the most about it is that it kind of works complementary to fight club. Um, and that like, whereas in fight club, it kind of ends with this sort of like, oh yeah, we're blowing up the buildings project mayhem is a go. And we're able to fight against the system and the killer it's the, the attitude is more like the system is so big. It's so like, it's almost impenetrable. Like he works for these like really top guys, right? The people who are calling the hits now are not like governments. It's not the mafia. It's hedge fund dudes, you know, Mm. it's, it's it's super, super rich guys who have more power than probably, you know, the politicians that pay off. And, um, and he doesn't even know who they are. You know, it's, it's also just like this faceless, soulless system. Um, you know, it's almost like Uber for him. Like he gets a thing on his phone that tells him, all right, this is your next target. He doesn't know who's, who's paying for it. He doesn't know why he has to kill the person. It's just like, you know, it's like on an Uber ride, like this person has requested a ride, you know? And right. It's like, right. Okay, click. Yes. It's it, it's it's
0: extremely impersonal and you're just yeah. sort of like in the flow of this this mesh of like networks.
1: Yeah, exactly. You're in the flow of this mesh of the, these networks, which has given the people in power way more power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that,
0: that's that's really cool. I mean, I, I won't urge you to divulge too much um, while we wait for the when we, wait for the, um, you know, yeah, the video, yeah, to come I'm, out, sho-
1: but- I'm shooting the last bit of it today, but it's mostly edited. So All I'm right. hoping to have a cut for my patrons tonight, but I know that that's wishful thinking. Uh, <laughs> I, cause I, every time I edit, I'll look at my timeline. I'll be like, it looks fully edited, looks fully edited to me. looks fine. And, uh, and then I start looking at, it. I'm like, I want to change this. I want to change this. And then before I know it nine hours later, yeah you know, um it's I've completely ch- changed the whole video that happens almost every time so
0: yeah well, well, one one interesting thing to just note um because I was surprised I shouldn't have been when you initially brought up Fight club because I was actually thinking about American psycho that's mm. what it sounded like initially yeah. um, you mentioned about how he sort of like in this system in every possible way right and, and sort yeah. of sounds like a lot of it is about him going deeper into it or co-opting it for these purposes um whereas in fight club there's like a clear distinction there's like a bifurcation of realms right so there's the main character and then there's tyler durden and yeah um the whole thing is like about separating those two lives uh sort of <laughs> completely right and you don't really there's not a whole lot of stuff going on where he's At work or doing things related to his work there's just sort of this other life that he has um whereas in this it's like totalizing
1: yeah yeah it's it's a bit you know like it takes yeah i would say that you know american psycho is also an influence but the character of the killer has a lot more humanity than bateman does because part of the movie is him sort of is Like he's a Raskolnikov type at the beginning where he thinks he's like this Nietzschean Ubermensch, right? At the beginning of the film. And he thinks that's, that's what allows him to do this. And sort of the, the, his character arc is um, uh, figuring out that he isn't. Um, Hmm. And his character arc is, so his character arc is finding this kind of happiness and sort of at the end rejecting this nihilistic worldview that he has in service of this new economy. Um, You know, that the nihilistic attitude helped him in this new economy, but it's kind of like a breakdown that the film is kind of following his like breakdown, that philosophical worldview kind of breaking down as he realized it goes against his own humanity. Uh, And it's about him trying to suppress his own humanity. And then he just can't after events that happen. Mm -hmm. um and uh and so like that's why i don't think i would put it with american psycho because patrick bateman just doesn't have humanity to begin with you know he is like this shell of a person who's all who's all superficial it's all masks that he wears like because he wears these different masks because to conceal the fact that there's really nothing behind the masks um Whereas the killer he's he's more of a three dimensional, three-dimensional person that reminds me of like what if Tyler Durden and the main character from Fight Club fused, but then were like ground into ground into submission by the system. You know, so he has both in him, but it's all in service of the system now. It's all to get the IKEA furniture. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. know, you know. It's that chaos and that order, but now it's like this—you know—Project Mayhem couldn't really do anything now. In fact, they they took his Project Mayhem, and now the elites are using it for their own ends. Right, right, yeah. So,
0: are there any movies that you can think of? They could be past. They could be more recent. That um, are apocryphal for thinking about the future
1: apocryphal about the future like like they have a vision of the future that is not accurate um
0: um
1: uh,
0: i believe i misstated that let me ask you again
1: (laughs) yeah because so every time i every time i've heard apocryphal it's like oh this apocryphal text because it's like you know, like the Gnostic text. And,
0: and yeah. Yeah. So, so like, there, there are like a number, like, like her was kind of like this where people were like, Oh, this is a movie that like is showing us a realistic depiction of like what what's coming. And that's really what I meant. I guess the yeah. opposite of apocryphal. Yeah. I don't um, know why that word came to my
1: head. The, uh, yeah, you know, I made a video on her and it's the easiest video I could, I could ever make. Uh, I remember uh, Isaac. Isaac texts me after, and he's like, uh, "Who's the Wigger at the beginning?" <laughs> so... No,
0: like, uh, so so I had a, I had a conversation a long time, two years ago, on my last show with Zero HP Lovecraft, yeah. where I asked him um, whether he was interested in writing uh, optimistic sci-fi, right? Like, whether there were mm-hmm. sci-fi visions of the future that don't just end in like horror. Um, cause you know, he's a horrorist and, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what his answer was, but more or less it was like, you know, we're not trying to create happy endings here. Um, and I don't really care necessarily whether you think the, whether you have an optimistic or pessimistic view of the future, it does to me seem like we are moving into, um, a phase where there's a lot of nostalgia on one side. So mm-hmm. there's like infinite nostalgia that's one big thing and then the other trend is that we are moving into like a more future focused uh vibe i i feel like i feel as if there's a well, techno optimist strain going on yeah um so i just wanted like to ask the, about movies that you think have interesting depictions yeah, like of the future
1: effective accelerationism uh yeah it's like kind more techno optimist uh right yeah i mean I was saying about her, like those, I you know, disgraced propaganda Isaac. You know, it's like who's the wigger at the beginning? Yeah, that's my friend Cumby. But because the video that I made on her was uh, almost entirely AI generated, uh, because I wanted, I wanted to see like where is AI now versus where the AI in her starts off. By. I started off with like a just a goofy sketch. I had some yacht rock song playing, and it's who was like my valentine's day video and uh it's my friend cumby who's another youtuber he was staying over at my place for this event this stand-up show that he was doing here in austin and uh um and i show him on a very romantic date with uh replica ai you know the like chat yeah and it was and that was like literally the day before when we were shooting that they uh they really uh uh cut replicas, uh, sex stuff and love stuff because they got, I guess, weirded out that so many people actually believe that they were in a relationship with replica. Mm. Uh, so, so it's him on the couch, like having a romantic date with my laptop. Uh, <laughs> and, and then, and then it goes into this video essay on her, but the essay was written by uh, chat GPT. And then my voiceover was done by Eleven Labs, hmm. so I just I just took uh right I just took a bunch of stuff from like raw audio from uh you know I went back into the Premiere profiles and took like raw audio of my voice and fed it into Eleven Labs and had clone my voice. Uh, the clips that I show above it aren't like I put in the clips. I I so the clips were not AI made, but um you know I just had clips from her playing. Uh, And then I ended it with asking people if they noticed that it was AI generated and was reading the comments. And it was really interesting to see uh, how like people, what people thought. Some people got fooled by the voice. Some people got fooled by the text. Some people weren't fooled by either. Um, So it's, it was kind of strange. And, you know, I did it more as a thought experiment to see like, where's AI now? Where do we think it's going in the future? Is it going to be as like, it wasn't a video where I'm like trying to explain her or anything. It's more of a video of just trying to get people to think about the state of AI Mm -hmm. uh, almost a year ago. um, And think like where it could go in the future. I mean, it's a short video. It was a fun video to make though. I mean, not that much work. I just, (laughs) Uh, but uh, as far, as far as like techno, like, optimist I mean I tend to go I tend to really like the the in art I tend to like stuff that's not optimistic about the future um just because I think that part of what sci-fi does and like the cyberpunk genre does especially is is look at what we have right now and then say pushes that say 20 30 years in the future and shows where it can all go wrong. And it kind of serves as like a warning for say people nowadays to be like, uh, maybe we should have a limit on this. Maybe Mm. we shouldn't be doing this right now. And I think that like, uh, as far as movies and, and books go stuff, that's more techno optimist might be more might make it, uh, more likely that we move towards a uh, dark futurist, you know, because it's like, oh, everything is great, you know? And so, so then the culture is like, everything we're doing is really great, actually. Let's just keep going with this. Let's keep making Skynet, (laughs) you know? Yeah, right, right. And plug in,
0: drop out. (laughs) yeah,
1: Yeah, the stuff that's, that's more horror focused, I think is actually trying to lead to a more optimistic future by kind of, uh, getting people who are making these new technologies to think about the repercussions of their products. Mm. Um and so I tend to I tend to be as far as tech goes, I don't know if I'm really an optimist or a or a pessimist in in either way like it's I I can't say that I'm somebody who can predict the future and and if I was, I wouldn't be a YouTuber. Um <laughs> I'd be paid a lot more money.
0: You saw asteroid city this summer. Yeah, uh, that was like literally the only movie I saw in theaters this year. Um, I didn't go see Barbie. I didn't go see Oppenheimer. I thought it was interesting that Asteroid City and Oppenheimer were out at the same time um, because they sort of overlap in their themes. What did you think of Asteroid City?
1: You know, I really liked it. Um, it does have that. So I saw it a couple times. I went. Uh, it's like U.S. premiere was at Austin Film Society. Um, and so I went to the U S premiere of it, but I had already before I even knew about the U S premiere, uh, which I, I think, uh, yeah, it was only for AFS members. Um, before I even knew about it, I had like bought a ticket to see it at the draft house like two weeks later. So I already had a ticket to see it like when it officially came out. So I saw it twice in theaters. Um, and i liked it a lot better on 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 the second watch you know there's it's there's a lot in there uh and it is interesting that it came out around the same time as oppenheimer because both deal with like uh the whole like uh nuclear you know nuclear bombs and uh atomic the atomic age and asteroid city is sort of like this vision of the atomic age uh that almost feels like a movie that you could see playing in fallout. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, them casually watching atomic bomb explosions from the diner, uh, okay. during the movie. And, and I feel like it kind of goes what asteroid city was, was going for. I mean, I, I, I think that above all asteroid city is, is sort of a, uh, um, self-reflection on on Wes Anderson himself or I guess that's redundant but it's Wes Anderson self-reflecting in a lot of ways because uh you know he's you know it's all kind of wrapped in this in this play and Adrian Brody is sort of the Wes Anderson character who is kind of obsessed with his work and um and so then the the movie that is the play is almost like this like heightened version of a wes anderson film uh it's already you know his films are already heightened but asteroid city is like almost even more so and you know and you have cutting between the color cinema scope of asteroid city and then the uh um black and white academy ratio of the 50s theater uh theater troupe that's based on uh you know it's one uh famous theater uh acting acting school from from the 50s and uh, and so like, I think that it's a lot of Wes Anderson sort of just reflecting on, on himself. I mean, like when you look into Wes Anderson's uh, childhood, you know, he would put on these plays uh, at a school that was like the Alamo, uh, or like these like big production plays, you know, for a school project that would, you know, you try to go all out like, Rushmore was a bit about, you know, was definitely about this. Um, So it's, it's him looking at that. And then there is this kind of nostalgia factor for, uh, for the 50s, 60s, atomic age era. uh, And this kind of optimism for technology for the future, where it's like all these, you know, all these uh, bright young kids are, are making, you know, like these laser guns and these things that can project stuff onto the, onto the moon. But there's a little bit of cynicism thrown in there as well. Like he's like, he put the American flag on the moon as part of his project. And they're like, this is going to start, like, this is going to heat up tensions with the Soviet union, you know? And then, and then he's, and then I think near the end, he's like, oh yeah, we're going to use it for advertising. You know, we can put the the Coca-Cola logo up there. You know, and, and uh and it's like the orb in Vegas, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> so so there's a there's like a little bit of cynicism thrown in there. What really kind of got me about that movie is how it's like an anti- quarantine film, right uh, <laughs> where it's about all these people going stir crazy and then rebelling against the u s government that has them in quarantine. <laughs> uh so. Like, it's a movie that definitely is like, like, I I think about this whenever there's a period piece, especially like a fictional period piece, like Asteroid City, is that he's using this period setting for various reasons, uh, but he's really commenting on today. Um, so I think that there's a lot of contemporary commentary on Asteroid City that he's comment he's, especially like in light of COVID. I think he's commenting more on that than he is commenting on how things actually were in the 50s or 60s and he kind of creates this idealized version of the 50s or 60s to sort of couch uh his sort of more modern uh ideas um or contemporary ideas I, I guess. Um but yeah, it was uh it was interesting in that it it, it he he doesn't you know, he never gets too like there's always a sense of melancholy to everything he does. So he he doesn't show it like, "Oh, here's this everyone was super happy back then." It's no, it like opens up with like the kids finding out that their mom died and yeah, tensions between all the different family members and, you know, very kind of real uh, hu- like human uh, it w- without also without also falling into the um the trappings that like say some contemporary people want to look back on say like the forties or some forties or fifties. And they're like, Oh yeah, all the, all the heads of the family were secretly gay. Everybody was actually a drug addict, you know, this very, very cynical look. It's more of a realist look, but sort of in this like hyper real scenario. Um, And so I think that he, like, there is this, the nostalgia, I would say of asteroid city is more in its aesthetics yeah and and it's um characters or story
0: well what's interesting is that the characters are like very um they're almost uh extremely moderated like there's no melodrama going on even though they're in a completely absurd situation Yeah, yeah
1: (laughs) yeah they're like normal
0: people in a really ridiculous situation
1: yeah yeah exactly you know taking the the zapper guns out to like uh, skeet shoot (laughs) you know like uh, how long are we going to be here (laughs) how long can they hold us as they're just like shooting skeet with lasers (laughs) And, and it's like they're not even thinking about the absurdity of their situation and also i i found it was funny that like an alien comes down and it's like this huge event and the alien only comes down to like inventory this meteorite Right. You know, he just basically puts a little like barcode on it and then he leaves and it's like they like, like it's it's absurdity and it's mundanity at the same time. And it's mm-hmm. almost like yeah, an absurd such situation but then everything about it is mundane. And honestly, that's kind of realistic, right? Like a lot of yeah. absurd stuff in real life is actually quite mundane in how it uh plays out. It, that is it's not melodramatic like he wasn't taking from like douglas Sirk or from todd haynes or you know from these like big melodrama uh directors like i i know that he was very influenced by like john houston and um they, they had a they had a series at afs and i went and watched all of them uh it's like close encounters of the third kind uh uh this one john houston movie with marilyn monroe i, for, uh, I forgot what it was called it was a good movie though um and uh I forgot I forgot what the third film was that they that they had play there, but um, yeah, he's definitely like I I would say yeah, basically he's using nostalgia as the aesthetic, but and he's using that to kind of get the audience in and in, in the world, and then kind of turning things up and make it more making it more absurd and absurd mm-hmm. and absurd, while keeping his own sort of dry wit and and eye for like the mundane within that. I mean you even look at his other films like say uh like say uh Moonrise Kingdom you know that takes a very mundane situation of like oh a Boy Scout uh you know a Boy Scout decided to run away with his girlfriend. You know they didn't know he had a girlfriend. And it's it's kind of like you know you start to think of it and you're like how is this really much of a story and how is this gonna get absurd? And it just keeps getting absurd, but the characters, the characters don't really notice the absurdity of their situation. They're still sort of bogged down in their own like interpersonal relationships and small town life and everything, you know, the entire time. Uh, You know, you also see that in, um, in like, uh, I mean, Rushmore where his, the absurdity in Rushmore is really from the plays that he puts on you're like, no way that this would be a high school play. Like he has a whole like Vietnam set, you know, here and explosions and stuff. And people are just kind of like dryly like noting like, uh, um, wow, you know, it's a good play. You you know, (laughs) like not Mm -hmm. like he has flamethrowers in a, in a high school Uh, and nobody really seems to care. They just put on their, sunglasses for the explosion, you know, like it's any other day. Um, yeah. I, I liked asteroid city quite a bit. Um, and uh, I liked his Netflix movies that he came out with uh, this year's this year too. He made like four short films mm-hmm. for Netflix, which is unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> I talked about that in my killer video. Uh, one of the unfortunate things about streaming you know, getting into maybe the economy of movies now is back in the day, back in like the late aughts, early 2010s, I remember uh, filmmakers like Mark Duplass, Joe Swanberg, you know, they were talking about how, um, like the way to make it as an indie filmmaker would be to make a really low budget movie, like Duplass made The Puffy Chair, Um, Swanberg made, I mean, between the two of them, they made a bunch of these like mumblecore movies and uh they were like just sell it to Netflix cuz Netflix was like buying all these like indie movies and it's like you sell it to Netflix it'll get seen by a lot of people you get you'll get more work off of that you know duplass obviously got like his show the league um mm. off off of the fame that he got from streaming like from streaming on Netflix and uh and now that's not really the case cuz Netflix is sort of its own production company but Netflix still does like buy movies so I believe Netflix produced The Killer. Um, I'm not sure that they produced Wes Anderson's films. And I know that they bought Linklater's new film, Hitman. Uh, And it got a lot of people talking because Netflix back in the day was like, wow, this is a great new service. It makes uh, watching movies so much easier. You know, it makes watching movies way more convenient. But what people have noticed uh, in the past years is that making it more convenient has made the films less culturally relevant and that, uh, say when a TV show, when Netflix releases a TV show and they kind of created the binge model yeah, um, is that they would like drop a new season of whatever TV show people would all binge it. Like that weekend that it dropped, people would be talking about it on Twitter. Facebook, whatever, real life, and then a week later, it's as if it never happened. It's as if it never released, and it's just kind of the same thing with a lot of movies where it's like everyone watches it the day that it drops or the weekend that it drops, and then, and then it's like people just instantly forget about it. It becomes it, it becomes disposable content, mm. um, you know. And so, you know, if you're able to sell your movie to Netflix. It doesn't necessarily hold the same cultural cachet that, say, it used to. Because where it would be in
0: theaters for months, and you know, yeah, people, and then there'd be an at-home release, and then people would follow yeah. up with that. And... Okay, yeah,
1: drawing drawing things out makes it definitely makes it more culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Twin Peaks to return, you know, was a weekly, um, was a weekly release on Showtime and sometimes they would play two episodes it was like sunday nights and sometimes they would play two two episodes but mostly they would play like one episode at a time and then i believe there was like a mid season break cuz it was like 18 episodes um so it was being talked about for like half a year you know mm-hmm. and now twin peaks return is still talked about like if say they release twin peaks return straight to netflix all 18 episodes I'm not sure that it would have the same effect uh it would have the same lasting power and i know that that's why some of these streaming sites uh have kind of ditched the binge model of things i know that like netflix tried to do that with stranger things season two but in a sort of a half-hearted way where or not season two the whatever the newest season is season four where they released like every episode but like the last two episodes on one day and then they're like oh in six weeks the last two episodes are going to release so they were trying to kind of draw that out but still still it it didn't quite work i know amazon with a lot of their shows now are releasing them week by week uh you know they're they're releasing them week by week to try to to try to fight to try to fight you know this this trend Mm. um but it's but yeah but making it, it, it it's as if making things more convenient to consume also just makes them way more disposable and makes them less powerful culturally than they are uh, otherwise if you you know through more traditional means and i think that's one of the reasons why these uh quote unquote anti-hollywood people are mm-hmm. not doing it correctly because daily wire right going back to daily wire like they have their own streaming service. So they release a movie to stream. Uh, and, you know, but you see like another like conservative movie from this year, which was Sound of Freedom. That didn't go straight to streaming. That played in theaters and became like the big conservative movie of the year. It made a lot of money mm-hmm. um, because they were playing in theaters and they really used word of mouth uh, to get people to see it and people were you know like my you know i i don't know the last time my parents like went to the movies and texted me this is so powerful you have to see it you know and i i kind of waited a long time to like go see it and i was like okay i'll check it out because like all my parents and their boomer friends were being like peter i know you're a movie guy you got to see this yeah movie. <laughs> right right you know but like no one does that with the daily wire movies because it's like oh they put it on streaming Daily Wire audience, I mean, it's the same problem as Netflix. They all watch it the same day or the same weekend hmm. and then, and then it's like forgotten, like nobody remembers, uh, shut in. I mean, hack. people don't even remember run, hide, fight or tear on the Prairie or their other, their other films that they made, you yeah. know, they, and they're only in, in that case too. They're only playing to the audience that Daily Wire plus already has, which you know, may, might be a big audience, but if they want to affect the culture, it's like, okay, you're just throwing red meat at your audience. You're not doing anything meaningful.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So stepping away from, uh, from daily wire, <laughs> yeah, daily wire plus Good. criticism. Um, you really like piqued my interest, um, both with this conversation. And honestly, I was actually pretty excited. Um, because, uh, w- when I first met you, because, um, when I met you, it was actually when I found out about your channel. I think I had yeah. seen it a few times before that, but didn't really pay attention. And in my own personal life, I'm kind of a lapsed cinephile. And mm-hmm. that, like I was really into film in like uh, mostly in high school. And then it sort of faded away over time. And um, now that I've like, you know, started talking to you and I looked at your channel and I watched, I've, I've seen some of your videos and stuff. I'm like, Oh crap. I got to like, like I'm missing all these, all these films, right? Like, and and not only films that are more current, but also there's a whole backlog of course of classic films that are on my list that i like need to get around to see. Right. Like I haven't seen yeah. metropolitan for example. It's oh, um, great. great. So, film. so I'm going to ask you yeah. um, five masterpiece recommendations to like, Go see right now.
1: Okay, okay, okay. Uh, let me think for a second. So, number one would be Orson Welles. It's the trial. Okay. Uh, Orson Welles the trial. You got it. Everyone has to see that. That's probably one of his most underseen movies. It just got a new 4K restoration. I saw that in the theater. I saw the new restoration in the theater. I'd seen the movie before, but it, the restoration did a really good job because the version I saw initially was not not very good. It was very much like uh needed some work done to it um uh so the trial uh classic classic movies uh, they don't have to be classic just five masterpieces five masterpieces oh okay let me look up my uh i know you've done
0: 10 before that's why i'm asking you this (laughs) yeah
1: yeah i'm trying to do like stuff that i haven't talked about on my on my channel yet um uh Um, Let me go to see what I gave five stars to on on my letterbox here. Uh, uh, Yeah, The Trial. um, uh, Let me see here. Uh, Well, everyone's probably seen Apocalypse Now. Um, I don't want to just give a whole bunch of Orson Welles movies here. Uh, Pasolini's uh, Theorem or Teorema. Some of these might be a little... Some of these movies might be esoteric. TRM is a bit uh, esoteric. Um, uh, I've already talked about The Brown Bunny extensively. I already talked about Underground. Uh, Oslo, August 31st. All right. Um, uh, Let me see here. Uh, Workmeister Harmonies by Baila Tarr. And... uh, Ah, crap. Let me... I think of a fifth one that's like American because I could say any kind of person movie, but I have a video on all persons films. Um, everyone knows Tarkovsky, so I don't think I need to tell people to go watch Tarkovsky. Uh, uh, I talked about walking the streets of Moscow already, which is all already pretty great. Um, uh, I'll say, uh, here is American Japanese Mishima, a life in four chapters.
0: Okay, great. <laughs> There's a Mishima yeah. film at the end. All right. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's pretty awesome. Um, we got way more than five out of that because, of course, you know, a, a good percentage of my audience doesn't necessarily know all the stuff that you like talking about. So, um,
1: yeah. Well, they can start with the Mishima movie. <laughs> okay, good. This is great. <laughs> we're going to start with the Mishima movie, even though we're, yeah,
0: we're, uh, we're not going to be political. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Mishima movie that was directed and written by Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. who uh, wrote Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting how it, it's about his life, but it also adapts some of his works within his life. And I, I like Mishima's uh, fiction fiction writing quite a bit. Um, So it's a nice blend of like biopic, but also... Uh, fiction adaptation yeah it's it's very different from many other movies i've seen i think it's on the criterion channel i know i have the criterion blu-ray of it so uh and if you want to pair that with something there's mishima short film patriotism that's definitely a mishima short film because it's all about a guy committing Mm (laughs) harakiri it's a very brutal harakiri uh film uh but it's like a silent movie where it's like about a japanese imperial officer of course who uh after the after japan loses he and his he and his uh, wife they have sex of course and then he commits hair carry and then she kills herself too um so it's it's standard mishima (laughs) it's very very
0: uplifting yeah um (laughs) Well, this has been a really fun tour uh, through, um, you know, movies and film history and, um, you know, the the industry itself. Um, And uh, I, I really loved it. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Of course, man. Thanks for having me.